My name is Pedro Mujabafid, and we at TMC aim to discuss and inform students regarding topics which aren't covered well in medical school. This interview series is aimed at answering the questions that medical students, interns, and doctors-to-be have regarding the various career pathways for medical graduates. Now, the views and opinions expressed here are purely personal and are not reflective or representative of the stance of any employer, college, medical service, endorsement, or other person. All right, let's start the show. Hi everyone, today we're discussing gastroenterology with Dr. Cern Yeo, who is a gastroenterology fellow. Hi Cern, thanks for joining us. Uh, pleasure. Can you start by telling us a little bit about your journey through medical school and medicine up to where you are now? Sure. So I started off um, studying in medical school at the Austin Hospital uh, and spent uh, three of my clinical years there, then progressing on to uh, internship residency and uh, then through basic physician training uh, all through the Austin Hospital. Uh, it was at the Austin Hospital working uh, with the gastroenterology team and the liver transplant team uh, that I really developed my passion and interest in this area uh, and therefore after passing my basic physician training exams I applied for uh, immediately for advanced training in gastroenterology. Uh, I spent my first year uh, of training in uh, Hobart in Tasmania uh, and then have spent the last two years here uh, at Box Hill Hospital. Were there any other specialties that you were considering along the way? Sure. Um, there were a few other specialties, but I think they all fell by the wayside when I realized that gastroenterology, um, I guess, fitted the way that I practice and fitted um, my interest in lots of different field. So uh, I did entertain um, working in cardiology and um, also other things like sort of like, like rheumatology uh, crossed my mind a few times. Um, as did general practice actually quite early on um, in, in, in my career um, when I was going through internship and residency. Um, what I think gastroenterology offers, however, is a, a real mix of different subspecialities. Um, and therefore your day is always very interesting. There's always um, a lot of different aspects to your day, whether that's inpatient work, then outpatient work, then endoscopy work, uh, and also uh, training uh, in new disciplines and, and, and studying um, new subspecialties within the field. Um, there's a lot of variety in a gastroenterologist's day, which I, I'm, I'm really drawn to. Was there anything in particular that you did to make yourself a more suitable candidate for getting into gastroenterology training? Sure. Uh, at the Austin Hospital, I simply made sure that the um, uh, relevant departments knew me and were aware of me and were happy to give me a reference, um, both in my work with them and also in my participation in small research and audit projects. Um, uh, the most major hospitals will often have some small uh, ideas for research and audit projects for interns and residents and, and you know even uh, enthusiastic medical students uh, and um, simply approaching the head of department and sitting down and spending five minutes or ten minutes discussing the possibilities often will lead to um, uh, fairly fruitful sort of gains if one applies oneself. So you started your research uh, quite early into your junior doctor life. Um, us as medical students are being pushed more and more to do research in our, our medical school years. Uh, first of all, what do you what are you, what are your views on that, and how does that affect us in the future? And how do you uh, what's the best way to go about finding good projects? Yeah, I I think it 
does become more and more important the specialities become more and more competitive through um, as the years go by in medical school uh, I, I don't think it's imperative to completely immerse oneself in research i think the main goal throughout medical school should still be to be uh, i guess well-rounded in your clinical development and your clinical learning uh, such that you become an efficient and effective intern and resident i think that's really the main goal um, taking part in one or two small research projects as a medical student i think is is usually plenty really um and there's there's always I guess more um, opportunity to increase your research uh, interest and in your in research participation in internship and residency, when perhaps the academic load that you would have otherwise had in medical school is not quite as heavy, um, and so you, uh, I guess once you're an intern or resident, you can pivot away from necessarily having to study and hit the books quite so hard, uh, and, and broaden your interest in any research. Um, as to your second question, which is um, um, the importance of sort of research going forward, I, I, I think there's always a, especially in large training hospitals, a very strong culture of research. And it's one of the main ways that um, uh, junior doctors can make themselves, uh, I guess, stand out a little bit from, from the crowd. What's important in terms of choosing a research project is to have a um, good understanding of your supervisor, which is very rarely the head of department, often it's another consultant who's working on it, and gauge their level of enthusiasm for this project and their level of involvement. Um, it's and making sure that that supervisor isn't sort of one that it's already has too much on his or her, her plate and that your involvement may be sort of sidelined uh, in favor of, uh, of their other projects i think that's what really makes sort of a, a, a difference as well as choosing projects which are um within the um i, I guess your capacity um to perform them out of hours because as an intern and resident you'll also be working full time so no one should be uh, aiming to overstretch themselves with a research project which might take you know, four or five years uh, at, at, at an advanced degree sort of phd level that's clearly not not, not the aim um small well-targeted clinical audits that might take half a year or a year um i are generally the scope that i i find are best um to be undertaking at that level should we be chasing being the first author of things or should it should we just be taking on any i guess research opportunity that comes along no, I, I don't necessarily put a lot of uh, stock in being the first author. I, I think it is an advantage, but chasing that to the detriment of your, uh, I guess, your, your, your clinical work uh, and also the rest of your work-life balance is not necessarily um, be uh, much more beneficial than being sort of the second or the third author. As an intern and as a resident, employers just want to see that you're engaged and you're involved. And having your name somewhere on the project is already very much makes you stand out. Um, first authorship is nice. Um, that being said, so many uh, consultants and um, fellows that you might work with with your research projects, they will be aiming for first authorship for their own career sort of reasons as well. Many of them will be um, fairly immersed um, in uh, the research culture and some may be even pursuing higher uh, research degrees. So 
I don't think one should be, say, disappointed or um, uh, reject a project if they're not going to be first author on it. I think any ability to show uh, engagement uh, already puts one ahead of the pack. If there's any doctors you'd like us to interview, or if there's any questions you'd like asked, please shoot us a message. We listen and respond to every single message that comes through. How competitive would you say gastroenterology is at the moment to get into advanced physicians training? It's very competitive, I think. Um, It's become more and more competitive in the last few years. Um, The uh, number of applicants each year does rise exponentially. Uh, There's no getting around that. Um, I think I I would say at my cohort that went through was probably the last year where there was a reasonable ratio of applicants to positions, maybe. So there are twice as many applicants to positions. Um, Now I think it's blown out to two and a half to three or four times the amount of applicants to to positions. Um, So it is competitive. Um, Research, as I said, is important, uh, although not necessarily straining for first authorship or being on a massive project, even just any involvement in small projects will do. Um, making sure that consultants and teams, uh, I guess, are aware of you, uh, whether you do uh, clinical work with them as well, um, or whether you simply, say, attend uh, their education sessions or their information sessions. That's a, a, another sort of underrated way of doing things. Even if you're not, uh, say, rostered onto a gastroenterology block for 12 weeks, even, say, turning up to their weekly education meetings um, and just being seen in the crowd and asking interesting questions uh, or even going up to the uh, head of department and saying that you'd like to review a paper or present a paper at one of their journal clubs. Even if you're not the dedicated gastroenterology resident who, who's on, um, they'll certainly uh, be happy to give you a chance and to um, hear what you have to say and have a a fruitful clinical discussion about things and that uh, i guess raises your profile a little bit as well definitely get yourself more well known hmm. i guess another question would be how competitive is gastroenterology compared to other specialties because at the moment everything's becoming quite competitive and quite difficult to get into hmm. but how does gastroenterology compare um look, uh, there's no empirical basis to what i'm about to say but i think it's probably in the top third of um, specialties uh, physician wise um, and I can really only speak for physician training, uh, which is you know, what I went through. I can't really speak to sort of uh, you know, general practice, psychiatric or, or, or surgical training. But again, within physician training, it's probably within the top third. It's probably up there with cardiology, um, uh, probably up there with, maybe not quite up there with dermatology, which is extremely sort of limited, but it's probably up there with, I'd say, cardiology. And what would be the time frame for someone to get in? Are they looking at, for example, PGY 6 or 7 to get into their APT? Sure. So um, I uh, got into my gastroenterology training in my PGY 6. But as I've alluded to, as things get more and more competitive, um, that may not necessarily be the norm for many people. It may be PGY 7 or PGY 8. Therefore, in between finishing basic training and getting into advanced training, people might have a few years of working as a um, uh, an advanced general medical trainee or a senior 
medical registrar in the public hospital setting. They could take that time to dedicate themselves to more research or, um, uh, or more audit work. Um, they can take locum positions potentially uh, and look for locum positions with a gastroenterological um, flavor. And uh, so I think as things become more and more competitive, um, it may become more and more the norm that people take a few years between basic training uh, and getting into the specialty that they're interested in. You're currently a fellow. What had, what does your typical day involve both now and when you were a registrar? So as uh, the difference between my work now as a fellow and as a registrar um, are, are really very different. So a registrar role is very much like a general medical registrar role, being one that's primarily looking after inpatients on the ward, starting at about 7.30, finishing about 7 in the evening, uh, with a fair bit of, uh, real, you know, a fair bit of overtime in that regard. Um, inpatient gastroenterological wards are generally very busy. There's uh, often a lot of acute patients that come in and mixed in with this uh, is the need to also train in endoscopy and attend outpatient sessions as well as your primary inpatient focus as a fellow so um a couple of years down the track of your training things are a little bit different there's much less of an inpatient focus there's more of a outpatient focus a little bit more of a research and audit focus um and it's really, I suppose, gearing one up to be an independent consultant at the end of the road. So um, the fellowship, a fellowship year like I'm doing now does have its challenges. I would say that on a day-to-day basis, it's a, it's a bit more relaxed and a bit less hectic than being a, guest, a, a registrar. So, um, and, and that's often the case with a lot of specialities as well. So the first few years of advanced training as a registrar can be very tough and very busy. But that's really when you are um, developing that core set of knowledge that you need to practice. Then moving into fellowship, it's more about setting those um, uh, uh, those skills uh, in, into practice and applying them like you would a junior consultant. What would you say would be the most rewarding part about your work in gastroenterology? I think the most rewarding part is the ability to um, deal with things quickly. So our endoscopic work um, does have a very sort of surgical flavor to it. And there's few sort of physician specialities um, whereby you can have a patient who, for example, is bleeding massively uh, at 8 a.m. And then by uh, 12 noon that day, you've arrested the bleeding, resuscitated them, and got them on well on the way to recovery. There's a real sort of satisfaction in the acuity um, in, 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 in that regard. Um, and I think that balances out the rest of your day um, when you might be otherwise dealing with sort of more chronic uh, health issues. Um, so you get a mix of the satisfaction of both managing long-term chronic patients, but also um, yeah, having a hand in acutely deteriorating patients and, and getting them back on track. And what would be the uh, aspect of the job that's most difficult to deal with? I think one of the aspects that registrars most deal with uh, as an advanced trainee is the need to answer questions and give advice from a large uh, variety of sources. So as a registrar in any advanced training field, you'll get questions from your residents and interns. You'll get questions from your consultants about certain patients that they may take an interest in. You will get questions from um, the nurses on the ward who recognize your authority with uh, 
um, the patients that you're looking after. You'll get questions from general practitioners as well, working out in the community who just need a little bit of advice uh, as to how to manage chronic gastroenterological issues. You will get questions from patients as well, um, who have been long-term patients of the department, who might have their own issues to deal with. Um, and therefore, a registrar's phone is very busy throughout the day. Um, and with good time management, one can balance all those different priorities and all those different calls coming in throughout the day. But that's a skill that definitely develops as an advanced trainee. How do you see the field changing over the next five to ten years? Sure. The field is changing rapidly um, and certainly um, in lots of its different gastroenterological subspecialties, there's a lot of forward movement. So, for example, uh, in the field of hepatology, of liver work, we're seeing a lot of new treatments for um, diseases such as hepatitis C. Um, but conversely, we're also seeing an increasing uh, incidence and prevalence of significant fatty liver disease, um, which can progress to cirrhosis and hepatocellular carcinoma. In fact, hepatocellular carcinoma is one of the uh, fastest uh, rising um, cancers in terms of incidence and prevalence uh, in the Western world. And uh, many of us fear that there's going to be a, a, a big wave of hepatocellular carcinoma coming through. Now, the treatment of such um, a, a cancer does come with its, its own challenges, and that's uh, in, in, especially those that are unable to be resected, and that's where a lot of work is moving into the future. In terms of uh, the field of inflammatory bowel disease, which we manage as well, um, there is increasing uh, use of a very powerful agents called biologic agents, which are essentially antibody antibodies against small molecules um, that drive inflammation within the gut. And while these uh, treatments are seeing uh, often fantastic effects clinically in patients suffering from inflammatory bowel disease, they also come with their um, challenges as well, with uh, risks of suppressing the immune system and uh, risks of untoward side effects as well. So uh, as the field develops, we're learning more and more about the possible side effects and downsides of such therapies. Um, there's in also increasing work finally in the gastroenterological field about the impact of diet and the gut bacteria in many chronic diseases. And that's an area of intense interest in research. Um, uh, questions are being asked as to does the gut bacteria affect uh, your risk of, say, getting heart disease or diabetes in the future? Does it affect the risk of you getting liver problems, liver cancer, or fatty liver, or even obesity. And you know, 20 or 30 years ago, none of us would ever have imagined that uh, the balance of bugs in your gut would have anything to do with any of these organs outside the gut. But now we're seeing much more research in that field, and we certainly uh, will um, you know, see some interesting breakthroughs in, in the decades to come. With all this uh, extra work and all this extra research, do you see new subspecialties of gastroenterology coming into play? I I, in, I do actually. Just thinking about that, so there'll be uh, maybe will be a um, significant role for microbiology focused gastroenterologists. Um, more and more, we are seeing the need for um, uh, gastroenterologists with an interest in nutrition, um, which was previously you know, thought to be uh, the domain of, sort of general physicians and dietitians. But 
as patients with complex gut problems such as short gut syndrome become more and more prevalent, um, uh, the need to have adequate nutritional understanding and nutritional replacements um, becomes more and more pressing. Um, similarly, there may be an expansion uh, into uh, practitioners with an interest in oncology, so oncogastroenterologists, to deal with complex liver tumors, complex bile duct tumors, uh, uh, even sort of complex uh, colorectal tumors as well. So I definitely think that the field is expanding in terms of its subspecialities as well. And would that be such as like a, a, a doctor who's gone through dual training in both oncology and gastroenterology, do you think? I, uh, perhaps not. I, I would probably say it would be, say, someone who uh, trains in advanced training in gastroenterology and then after the advanced training goes on to pursue specialized fellowships in this area, whether that be in Australia or internationally. Sure. Uh, and with all, the, with all these uh, chronic conditions becoming the mainstay of uh, the things that we treat, do you see more interaction with a multidisciplinary team to in order to mediate the treatment of these, or do you see that being kind of stable with how many people we're interacting with? No, that's a good question. I, I think there's no doubt that with the rise of chronic diseases, all physicians of all specialities are adopting a more multidisciplinary approach to the management of their patients. We are managing overall our patients better and they're living longer despite their chronic diseases whether that be chronic liver disease or chronic gut disease um, therefore um, the need for input from dietitians who can manage things throughout the age spectrum the need to um, uh, involve um, for example drug and alcohol rehabilitation counselors especially in our patients with chronic uh, alcohol uh, and drug use um, becomes ever more prevalent um, the need to uh, involve uh, physical therapists and physiotherapists um, in our aging population across the spectrum um, becomes more and more uh, important, not just in the inpatient field, but also uh, managing patients uh, as an outpatient and making sure that they can continue to maintain their independence at home despite their chronic health issues. So um, I think um, with our aging population, that is a direction that all physicians are moving into and gastroenterologists are no exception. Would you say gastroenterology is primarily an inpatient specialty or an outpatient specialty? So the main practice of it is actually more of an outpatient specialty. As a registrar, you do deal with a lot of the inpatient work, but once you uh, get to graduate and move forward, a lot of it is outpatient work, which comes with its own challenges. Um, outpatients, uh, or with an, with an outpatient, you often don't need, uh, or you don't have as much time to make decisions, for example. An outpatient might see you for 10 minutes or 15 minutes a day, during which time you have to, um, glean all of their relevant issues and make management plans quite quickly. Um, whereas as an inpatient, you might get a couple of hours to think and to discuss. Um, similarly, without patients, they're more difficult to monitor. Um, you can't be uh, taking their blood pressure every day or taking blood tests every day uh, for an outpatient. And that requires an increased clinical judgment to make um, um, appropriate management plans, which you think will both be safe and efficacious until the next time that you see them, which might be you know, in a week or two weeks or three weeks. Um, and that's the kind of judgment uh, that one gets as an advanced trainee as one moves through uh, the training process. You mentioned you work worked interstate for a, a, a small a small stint interstate. What was that like, and is that something that you would recommend people to do? 
I think it was overall an excellent experience. Um, working in Hobart in Tasmania meant working in a in a smaller hospital, but and where there was only one advanced trainee, I was the only gastroenterology trainee, and I was responsible in that role with my consultants of looking after the entire bottom half of the state of Tasmania. There's a lot of responsibility there. Um, there's a lot of uh, role for autonomy there as well. Um, as a an advanced trainee in a smaller hospital, I found that I didn't have to compete say, with my peers, to see interesting patients or to do interesting procedures um, or um, to, uh, I guess, attend learning opportunities. Um, It was uh, potentially a little bit isolating. I didn't interact a lot with the other trainees being uh, that were in Victoria um, as I was just down there by myself on the island. But what that meant was that I could really immerse myself in the learning uh, as the single registrar in that hospital, uh, I could really um, spend a dedicated amount of time with all the consultants down there and glean from their experience. So I think overall it's a very positive experience. Make sure to keep in touch with us through social media. Our handle is at the Med Collab, that's T H E M E D C O L A B, on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can also subscribe to our podcast for our weekly release. Now back to the show. What would you uh, comment on regarding your work-life balance? How do you think it is at the moment and how has it changed going from registrar to fellow? Sure. As a registrar, it's challenging to balance one's work-life balance. A registrar works hard. A registrar gets up early in the morning and returns home generally fairly late. Um, One thing that comes as a bit of a shock, I suppose, when we start registrar work is that there's often not a lot of opportunity to hand things over to someone else at the end of the day. A lot of jobs are yours and yours alone. Um, and if you don't sort of get them done by, the, done by the end of the day, they're yours to do the, uh, the next day. And so they pile up if you don't get things done. So it is particularly challenging. I had, in the end, at the end of the day, not a whole lot of problem with it, but I was in a fortunate position with a fairly stable home life and a fairly stable financial situation. So there are definitely challenges to people who perhaps were not in my fortunate situation. And that's something uh, to be very frank about with your supervisors. Um, through really, through, And this goes through any stage of training, even through medical school. If any of those external life factors um, mean that uh, you're having uh, difficulty applying yourself at work or vice versa if the stresses and rigors of work are meaning that, that you're not uh, able to fulfill your duties um, to uh, outside of the workplace um, to caring for your family or to caring for your loved ones and that's something that we all understand and something that needs to be very much emphasized the need to maintain a good work-life balance as a fellow at the moment, uh, the work-life balance is a little bit easier because the clinical workload is a little bit lighter as well. Um, but certainly those first two years uh, in registrar training can be very difficult on some people. And it's important to have a very open dialogue with your supervisors, and with your consultants, all of whom will understand exactly what you mean. Uh, you mentioned before that, you, that as a registrar, you're working up to 12-hour days. How did that... Uh impact on your actual work uh, on your home life i guess did that mean that you had to sacrifice some things at home not particularly myself but as mentioned i had a very stable home life um in terms of um, my social circumstances 
but certainly I know people who may have had to sacrifice things, especially, say, those who get positions working interstate. Um, that's a significant sacrifice, uh, especially if they are set up with family and uh, uh, obligations in one particular state to pack up and move everything else, especially if there's partners and families involved who have to pack up and move and perhaps find other jobs themselves as well. Um, so a lot of people do make sacrifices, you're right, to um, move through into advanced training. And that's, I think, something that we can't sort of shy away from uh, and something that we need to be you know, quite honest about. And did you find it would have, it was difficult to deal with it mentally? And do you come under, I guess, a lot of mental stress, which I guess pushes you towards that downward spiral, which a lot of doctors experience? No, not personally, but I know doctors who have. And I think um, overall we're getting better as a uh, profession. We're getting better at discussing these issues. We're getting better at acknowledging these issues. We're still far from ideal in terms of dealing with these uh, issues in a... Uh, you know, com- com- uh, completely uh, holistic and com- uh, complete sort of manner. Um, so there are definitely ongoing stresses which need to be addressed uh, at a systemic level, at a training level, at a um, sort of broader community level. Where we as doctors need to uh, overall be more and more increasingly open to having these conversations with our colleagues and our juniors. Uh, as, as to the stresses that come with this sort of work because it is, it is a very rewarding line of work overall it really is and we I don't know of an advanced trainee who's in their you know, training program uh, out of a sense of um, sort of weary obligation to uh, medicine all of us are in advanced training because at the end of the day we're very interested and we can see ourselves working um, in this line of work for, for years and decades to come but um, there are short term sacrifices which can unique challenges uh, and we need to be very honest about that how much time uh, on call and on weekends did you have to do as a registrar sure so I, I still spend a bit of time on call and um, on weekends nowadays and certainly as a registrar um, say every day one would stay back about two or th- two hours potentially not every day um, some days you might um, I guess finish your workload a little bit early but to keep on top of things uh, I would probably do at least one or two hours over time a, a day um, and on the weekends um, depending on which hospital you're at you might have one in every three weekends or one in every four weekends where you're on call uh, and then some nights during the week as well um, so that is a particular I guess challenge for our specialty for gastroenterology um, as well as a few other of the more um, acute medicine uh, subspecialties within the physician field such as cardiology where being on call literally means needing to come in in the middle of the night should anyone need a therapeutic procedure so other specialties um, necessarily don't really have that level of acuity so that's another layer of challenge uh, in the gastroenterological training uh, pathway do you recommend uh, people take time off, like take a year off? And if so, when do you recommend they do it? I didn't, but I think that's a terrific idea. I honestly do. I um, think that a reasonable time to do it uh, is often after resident year. And what that means is that uh, that by that stage, you've gained enough clinical skills in your first two years of um, work as a doctor to be valuable as a locum if you wanted to work interstate or um, simply locum around town while you focus on other aspects of your life 
and even if you wanted to travel uh, overseas and um, I guess locum in some countries, uh, some English-speaking countries, there are sort of possibilities there. Um, and that's obviously before one gets into basic uh, physician training or and before one gets into advanced training. And um, uh, I guess you can apply yourself uh, in many other areas of interest that you might have. I know people who've taken time off and, say, done a, a degree or a higher degree or a diploma um, in um, uh, an, um, an academic field. I think that's probably the optimal time to do it. It becomes trickier, say, during your basic training to do it because with basic training, you do need a lot of forward momentum every year just to keep studying and keep working through and then passing the exams. After basic training uh, is a reasonable time to maybe take a year off as well. I know a lot of people who um, uh, took time off after basic training to actually start families. And by that time, they've got their basic training under their belt uh, they can. Uh, they're often at, at an age um, where they feel it's appropriate to start a family, and it might take a year off to do so. The challenge there, however, becomes getting into advanced training afterwards, um, because even after you finish basic training, you still do need a little bit of momentum to keep up um, contact with um, consultants in the field that you're interested in, to keep up, say, research involvement, or to keep up clinical involvement. Um, and often if you take a year off after basic training and then take a year or two off and then try to get back into advanced training, that year or two may have, uh, I guess, blunted your momentum a little bit. I think the best time is sometime uh, after about two or three years of internship or residency um, when you've got the skills that you need, but you're not necessarily locked down in a training program. Do you have any interests outside of medicine? And if so, how do you fit them into your life? Oh, I, I think it's reasonably easy once you uh, learn time management to uh, fit them into your life. And uh, often, I, I think a lot of doctors are drawn to you know fairly solo sort of pursuits and solo interests, which means that they're able to fit them into a fairly unpredictable schedule. So reading, music, art, etc. Uh, I know a lot of doctors who've got a particular interest in that. In, in, in terms of having dedicated, um, scheduled times for extracurricular activities, in advanced training, sometimes that can be a little bit tricky. Uh, that can go out the window a little bit. For example, you know, as an advanced trainer, you can't say to a group that you play in or a group that you play with that, oh, every Wednesday I'm definitely going to be free as soon as uh, five o'clock comes around, because as I mentioned, unfortunately, as an advanced trainee, sometimes that's just not the case. And clinically, you need to be dedicated and get all your work done. Um, but that being said, I do know a lot of advanced trainees who um, manage to work in sporting interests as well, uh, say often on the weekends when they're not on call. Um, and that really keeps you sane and really keeps you human. I think that's you know, very important. As a group of people who do medicine, we're all often quite high achieving and often find it difficult to be faced with and to deal with failure. How do you, do you have any tips on how people should go about dealing with failure? Because it is something that we're all going to come across at one point or another in our medical degree, but often it can be really confronting and difficult to deal with for someone who has been quite high achieving the whole life. Yeah, yeah, very much so. Very much so. And medicine, um, I think it's important to recognize that the history of medicine is by its very nature dictated by failure. 
that's how medicine progresses. That's how we as professionals progress. And I think it does take a bit of a cognitive shift to realize that that someone who's continuously surrounded by success may not necessarily be moving the field forward or challenging themselves to move their own practice forward. Um, and it's something that um, you, uh, I guess, get rather you know, do you get do get confronted with in advanced training. The um, level of knowledge you need becomes exponentially higher, and the level of experience you need becomes exponentially higher. Um, and I think if we regard failure um, not as an end point, but as a starting point for progression, if you reframe it in that sort of paradigm, then it becomes less, uh, I guess, le less challenging and le less confronting and less of an absolute um, uh, uh, sort of phenomenon, as it were. Um, if we think about you know major scientific advances throughout the 18th, 19th, and 20th century that have led medicine to where it is now, it's riddled by failure, and that's the, by the very nature of it. You know, science uh, and medicine would not be the discipline it is now without failure, because failure um, refines us. Failure. Um, reduces the amount of uncertainty that we have going into the future because we've known what hasn't worked and now we can focus on things that might do. It allows us to refine our hypotheses uh, as to how we work and how we practice. Um, and it essentially, yeah, it, it cuts off um, uh, the confusion of multiple paths that you can take by saying, well, actually, maybe that path didn't work. And therefore, these are the alternative paths we need to focus on. What kind of people should do gastroenterology? Or conversely, if it's easier to answer, what kind of people aren't suited to gastroenterology? I think that's a, that's a tricky question. I, I wouldn't think that there's many people who are unsuited to gastroenterology. I do want to emphasize the importance of your external um, life commitments, though, as well. And maybe I'll answer by saying that one has to be cognizant of you know, of, of other obligations outside of medicine. If you have family obligations, if you have personal obligations, if you have your own health problems, let's be honest, if you have you know, your own financial issues that you might need to get over, perhaps you know, rushing into advanced training is not necessarily uh, you know, the aim at the moment, but perhaps it's, it's dealing with those other challenges might be more pertinent. Because you do, do want to make sure that you're in a mental and social and financial position where you can tackle the challenges of advanced training head on. Because that's better for you. Um, because uh, yeah, so, so it's important that you're in a mental and physical and financial position to tackle the challenges of advanced training head on. Because that's better for overall for your development. It makes you a better trainee and makes you a better consultant at the end of it. It also makes your patient's outcomes better as well if you're able to dedicate yourself more. So I think that's important and you know it's it's very easy for me to say in retrospect it's very easy for me to say but you know if someone is struggling in these regards and they've you know, done or they're moving through their basic training it might not be the worst idea to take a couple of years off afterwards deal with family issues you know, if you've got small children let them grow up um, take that time to work part-time, do locum work, do research work here and there. And then when things the time's ready, you know, apply yourself to advanced training. I th think, you know, um, 
we as doctors can practice for, for, for decades. We can practice for four decades, five decades. And there's, if, if the situation isn't right, there's no need to rush into advanced training and you know, uh, have an arbitrary goal of becoming a consultant before you're, you know, before you're 30 or before you're 35. Um, if you consider it, you know, many uh, physicians nowadays work into their late 70s and into their early 80s. Um, so there's always time. The last question I had is, is there a piece of advice that you wish you knew as an intern or is there advice that you would want to give to interns? Listen to interns? Yeah, yeah. yeah very much so. Um, I think the advice that I would give um, is to learn to delegate and to hand things over and to do your best to get home at a reasonable hour. It's difficult to do so as an intern and residency resident because, as you've already, already alluded to, many of us come from a culture in medical school where success is the norm and completion of all your um, tasks that are allocated to you is the norm. Now often as an intern and resident that doesn't necessarily happen. Um, you can feel like at the end of the day that you're still responsible for you know, seeing all these other patients and answering all the other pages that you've had. Um, and in, in a way that's noble but in a way that can also be self-defeating. If you're doing that day in day out for, for you know, 365 days of the intern training year, that will wear you down. And that's not something that's necessarily healthy. And you need to understand that, you know, if you finish the day, and despite the fact that you've been working very hard, and you finish the day and there's 10 other tasks to do, that necessarily may not reflect on you. In fact, that probably reflects on the way the system works as well. And that's something you should bring up to your supervisors. You should hand those tasks over. There's always plenty of time after hours for the after hours internal resident and the night resident who's working overnight, whose job is usually less busy, right, to take on those tasks for you. Um, and you know, bringing that uh, sort of level of overwork up can uh, aim to sort of change work culture if... Um, you know, the people sort of organising uh, your workload are made aware of this. The, it, it, it's it, it's good to work hard. It's good to sacrifice oneself to some degree uh, for the betterment of one's patients. You know, altruism drives us and drives us as uh, people and drives us as a professional community. But there's a level beyond which self-sacrifice you know, becomes self-parody and um, you know, can lead to people burning out and that's not what we need and um, that um, I would guess you know, would be a very a real disappointment to someone to succeed so well through medical school and then you know, go, go a year or two and find that they're burning out because um, they're taking on too much of that responsibility on themselves they're driven by guilt you know we should not end the day driven by guilt we should end a working day saying we've worked as hard as we can we've really applied ourselves we've learned and we've developed uh, as professionals uh, and if there's tasks remaining we'll delegate them to other people and we'll start the next day afresh i think that also extends to being a medical student as well and not burning yourself out in especially in your very very junior years because you have such a i guess a long journey ahead of you as well absolutely right Pedro. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Sern. We really appreciate it. That's a real pleasure. Take care. And finally, please make sure to complete the survey for this episode. We want to make sure the episodes are as useful as possible, and the surveys help us to monitor whether they're making an impact on our fellow peers. It only takes 30 seconds, and it helps more than you can imagine. The link can be found on our Facebook and our blog. That's it from us. See you in the next episode.